and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today we're really getting into the good stuff with a discussion about reality itself. This is perhaps my favourite thing to talk about in philosophy, though you couldn't exactly call it a topic, since it's more something that underlies many different topics and issues in philosophy. I'll start by framing the disagreement. That is, the thread we'll be following throughout this whole episode. The debate about reality comes down to a disagreement between scientific realists and social constructivists. Realists, just as the name suggests, believe that our best scientific theories do describe reality. So, when a theory says, there exists an electron and it behaves in the following way, realists take it that the electron is real. And does this sound like an obvious conclusion? Well, as always, not all philosophers agree. Constructivists, on the other hand, believe that our scientific theories do not describe reality because our knowledge is shaped by socio-cultural conditions. Extreme constructivists would say that everything we think we know is simply a product of socio-cultural conditioning, that our theory of subatomic particles, including the electron, was only constructed because of background factors, time and place and culture and contingency. On a different day, in a different place, a different person with a more or less full stomach would have formulated some other theory with some other particles that might have adequately explained the phenomena in a different way. Our scientific theories are fundamentally human constructs, not descriptions of reality itself. Well, as the constructivist would say. And this kind of sums up the spirit of postmodernism. When it comes to postmodernists, I like to think of the catchphrase Everything's a construct, man. My challenge for this episode is to formulate an answer that says, well, no, it's not. The social constructivist view looks at many human activities and points to the terrestrial contingencies. Patricia Farah describes the history of science in terms of real people and real life. The progress of science was as much motivated by war and politics and business as by the pursuit of knowledge. If science is less focused on truth and more focused on blowing up your enemies, then how can we trust what science tells us as being true? As Farah puts it, the history of science is a history of real people. People who made mistakes, people who had rivalries and grudges, people who made decisions in order to earn a living and people who sometimes got bored and decided to do something else. I love that last factor in particular. You could almost sum up all of human history and human life as human attention. The history of things that have happened is a history of things that people did because those things caught someone's attention. Whereas you could say that there are many, many things that have never happened. Things that were never built, Things that were never investigated or researched or talked about because people forgot about them or got bored or changed their minds. I sometimes like to think about my own productivity in these terms. The history of things that were created is a history of people who didn't give up. Whether it's novels or pyramids or declarations of independence, behind each of these is a story about people who did not get bored or forget, or change their minds. 
History records the successes, the actualities. History does not often record the non-actualities. There is no contrasting ledger of things that are almost done or half thought through. It's satisfyingly clear to reduce works of knowledge or creativity to the necessary human authorship underlying the story. Without some act of attention by someone, none of these individual works would have been created. That is the greasy human handprint on the history of knowledge making. When I'm lacking in productivity, I like to motivate myself with simple questions. Did David Hume spend his time writing philosophy or watching Netflix? And as a follow-up, will I achieve as much as Hume achieved if I choose to watch Netflix right now? I'm not knocking relaxation time, I simply like to reflect on the product of a chosen activity. Creative hobbies have creative products. Novels, songs, blog posts. Whereas other pastimes, even reading or watching films, have no tangible product. We can apply the same analysis to our work life. Spending time writing emails produces, well, emails. Cal Newport calls this shallow work. Whatever your job, you are probably striving for some product other than emails. I like to keep this chosen product in mind, rather than simply running down the clock on whatever shallow task presents itself. I have one last musing in this tangent about productivity. One important and very valuable pastime is socialising. It's incredibly rewarding to spend time with friends, with no regard for producing anything other than social experiences. This pastime has no product, and nor is it meant to. But this poses a puzzle for my self-imposed productivity checks. Did David Hume spend his time writing philosophy or hanging out with friends? I certainly hope that Hume had a rich social life, but presumably he spent enough time alone to do a very considerable amount of writing. And here's the insight. If I were more introverted, I could have chosen more productive pastimes. I indulged the fantasy that I would have done more writing and made more music if I were introverted. Don't get me wrong, I'm not wishing I liked people less. I like that I like people. A lot. It's just a curious insight. Works of knowledge or creativity require acts of human attention, and those acts are often achieved in seclusion. Some are achieved through collaboration, but a lot of great thinking requires great seclusion. How we choose to spend our time and cash in our limited attention, these decisions affect the kind of products that are available to us. Knowledge making is a curiously terrestrial and human endeavor, one that bears greasy handprints. Anthony Grafton talks about scholars in his book, Defenders of the Text. Grafton talks about the work of a scholar or an academic and says, quote, He is the prisoner of his own tastes and obsessions, interests and insensitivities. End quote. We are indeed prisoners, locked into our own biology and psychology. It is very important to recognise this. So much of what humans do is motivated by interests and tastes. Are we ever free of our interests? Surely, everything we do, work or study or recreation, is just a matter of how we direct our attention, almost on the basis of a whim. 
Let's stay in this slightly cynical frame of mind and turn to the law. What is justice? And how is it manufactured? Well, it's manufactured by people. Politicians passing laws and police officers enforcing laws and judges interpreting laws. These are real people and they get hungry and bored. Of course, judges truly try to step outside of biases and influences, to get above being buffeted from side to side by their biology. Or, at least, the good ones do. But it still comes back to human attention. The outcome of a case is the option that caught the judge's attention. And this might be for reasons of salience or logical argument, or for reasons of taste or interest or attention. Judges are real people, and trusting them to create justice is like trusting scientists to discover truth, or so the constructivist might say. For the record, I do believe in justice, but it is a very practical affair. It involves compromises and trade-offs. Justice is only ever partial, since there are too many moving parts in the real world. Justice is pragmatic, not idealistic. And any type of workable justice, the type that does some practical good in the world, is only ever partial and never total. I want to throw one more spanner in the works. This is the last step in my deconstruction of the notion of truth, and hopefully you'll soon be sufficiently riled up to see the need to reconstruct truth. Donald Trump is someone who plays fast and loose with the truth, and we've been told that he represents a culture of post-truth. And what the fuck is post-truth? Well, it is constructivism to the extreme. Post-truth says that there is nothing more at play than the construction and the emotions of human beings. There is no fact of the matter outside of what humans say or how humans behave. If we are persuaded to believe something, then it is true. Truth is persuasion, and there is nothing to latch onto outside of human experience that is capable of making something true or false. Post-truth sets the conditions for truth and falsity and says that the only reference point is human activity. There is no external point of reference, nowhere to hang your hat. It's constructivism all the way down. Sadly, when it comes to examples of this behaviour, there are now too many to count, but one of the clearest examples came right at the start of Trump's presidency. After his inauguration, Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, said, This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. However, all the evidence, like photographs of the crowd, showed that it wasn't the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. But somehow, Trump and his supporters didn't seem to care. The question of truth did not involve some appeal to external facts. Rather, truth was simply a matter of persuasion. What is true is what we believe, or what we are persuaded to believe. And it goes without saying, hats off to the ingenious, orange-faced persuader. Truth is not something external that we latch onto. Rather, it is something internal, it is constructed by humans, and it is pleasurably malleable. This behaviour has continued throughout Trump's presidency. Trump's response to the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 has been dishonest to the point of being pathological. 
Let's not forget that he originally described it as a left-wing hoax in February 2020. Then, in the subsequent months, he continued to praise the tremendous and incredible work of his own administration in dealing with the pandemic. Trump simply looked at a long menu of possible realities and chose this narrative of success as the one that he would bring to life. He appears pathologically ignorant of, or indifferent to, other external facts, like the number of infections and the death toll. In the case of both statistics, the American figures were the highest in the world as of August 2020. So, are you pissed off yet? I hope you'll agree that post-truth is constructivism gone too far. So, that's why we need to reaffirm our notion of truth. We need to reconstruct fucking reality itself and justify how humans can get outside the constraints of persuasion and boredom and empty stomachs. To justify how humans can say things that are true or false about reality. Reality is not just what your man with the orange face says it is. What I'm talking about here is a persistent, mind-independent reality. There is a fact of the matter about how many people attended Trump's inauguration, and that fact is independent of our knowledge, our beliefs, our feelings. We can be ignorant or mistaken or misled, and the fact itself doesn't change. This mind-independent reality is something external to human beliefs and human imagination, in a way that we can latch onto it and hang our hats. It is an external point of reference that determines whether our statements are true or false. That is why we need a reconstruction of truth and reality. So buckle up. At this point, I want to introduce Bruno Latour. Latour is very famous for arguing that knowledge is socially constructed, and there is a slightly confusing distinction to be aware of. Latour is not a social constructivist, but rather a social constructionist. If you want a headache, I recommend reading about the distinction between social constructivism and social constructionism. I'll try to make your life easy by giving you the shortest possible summary of the distinction, as I see it. Social constructivism focuses more on psychological construction, subjective facts about brains and perception and experience, and how these factors construct the world in a way that makes true objectivity impossible. Whereas social constructionism, which is Latour's school of thought, is a more physical, external type of construction. Artifacts and actors and networks, elements that interact to form local cultures and global structures, where reality is constructed through these interactions. So it may be a distinction between a more internal, psychological construction versus a more external, physical construction. But we don't need to trouble ourselves too much with this distinction. Both the social constructivist and the social constructionist argue that reality is socially constructed, albeit in different ways. They both agree that reality is not something objective or external to human beings. So, back to Latour. 
Latour is famous for actor network theory, and this holds that what we consider to be scientific facts are actually constructed through relations between objects, animals, humans, and other causes, all of which are referred to as actors. These actors do not need to have agency, so the category is not limited to humans. Actors can be animals and technology, like lab specimens and machinery, or anything that plays a causal role, like methods, assumptions, or social rules. All of these actors interact to form a network, and this is how knowledge is produced. So, actor network theory implies that facts about reality are not discovered, but rather are produced or constructed by human and non-human actors in a vast institutional network. And this seems to undermine the whole business of science. If facts are just something produced by an institution, like a factory produces a car or a publishing company produces a novel, then how can we trust the scientific description of reality? Facts are man-made, just like cars and novels, and not something objective. They are products of human culture, not something independent to or outside of human culture. Well, this may be jumping to the wrong conclusion. There is an excellent New York Times article about Latour from 2018 with the title Bruno Latour, the Post-Truth Philosopher, Mounts a Defense of Science. Subtitle, he spent decades deconstructing the ways that scientists claim their authority. Can his ideas help them regain that authority today? The point that Latour tries to hammer home is that social constructionism and scientific realism are not mutually exclusive. Rather, we can be confident that scientific theories accurately describe reality if they are upheld by robust institutional networks. Yes, scientific facts are constructed by humans, but if they are constructed by sound institutions and competent networks, then of course they can accurately describe reality. So let's talk about facts. What gives facts legitimacy? Option A. A fact is legitimate if it successfully refers to a persistent, mind-independent reality. That is, if the fact matches up with an external reference point outside of human knowledge. Option B. A fact is legitimate if it is supported by a robust institutional network. This applies an internal measure, since we ask whether the network itself is competent whether the network has the right tools and artefacts and human actors to make such a claim. For example, the laws of physics. Are the laws of physics legitimate because things fall down, an external measure, or because they are systematically formulated and tested, an internal measure? Another example, particle physics. Are particle physics theories legitimate because they latch onto persistent regularities, properties and states at the subatomic level, or because they are bolstered by an institutional network? When we're assessing a particle physics theory, what measure do we apply? Do we care more that it really does describe persistent properties and states, like real particles, or do we assess the actors involved? Do we look at the credentials of the scientists and the types of machines they're using? In my view, 
both of these approaches are honing in on the same target. If the network of scientists and machines is competent, then surely it successfully describes reality. If we judge the network to be competent, then surely what we mean is that it has shown itself capable of latching on to real regularities out there in reality. A fact is both the competent human construction and the external regularity to which it refers. A real fact is both a competent construction and an external regularity. You might detect a certain circularity here. So, if a network is competent, then it describes reality. If it describes reality, then it is competent. This kind of circularity crops up very often when we talk about human knowledge, and it appears to be an inescapable feature. But I think it is a feature, and not a bug. Circularity is not always a deal-breaker. Circularity is found in the real world, in positive feedback loops, where elements of a process reinforce subsequent stages of the process. And here is my hot take. Human knowledge is simply a positive feedback loop. It is a process which involves constant tweaking and adjustment to hone in upon accuracy and truth. So, in a nutshell, knowledge is a positive feedback loop between internal constructions and external regularities. The twist in the story of Latour is that he spent decades arguing that scientific facts are constructed by these networks. And yet, here he is in 2018, arguing that this construction does not mean that they are not real. Let's go back to the postmodernists. Remember my postmodernist catchphrase? Everything is a construct, man. Well, I think Latour's response would be, yes, everything is a construct, but some constructions are legitimate. Some constructions, like theories about electrons, are produced by competent scientists with state-of-the-art machinery, and this makes all the difference in the world. Other constructions are produced on a whim by men with orange faces, and it is no surprise that those statements do not accurately describe reality. The reason for Latour's urgency is climate change. He is anxious to show that science can describe reality in order to respond to climate change deniers. In fact, he is responding to all types of junk science. I have felt this unease for a long time. When the postmodernist says, everything is a construct, man, every person is handed their own license for truth. Who am I to say that my truth is better than yours? Truth is just a construct, and there's no way to compare statements about the world, because there's no external point of reference. Everyone's just a law unto themselves, and who cares if you believe in climate change or not? Who cares if Trump's crowd was the biggest? These are all just competing stories, and none is more true than the other. Wrong. There is junk science, and there is mainstream science. And the opinion of someone on the internet is not worth the same as the opinion of a competent expert. The phrase, well, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, is equally dangerous. Everybody is not entitled to their own opinion. Who constructs the theory and how it is constructed makes the world of difference. 
When we say that facts are produced by people, just like Aston Martins are produced by people, this does not say that the means of production are open and facile. A man sitting in his basement wearing a tinfoil hat is not in a position to produce an Aston Martin, and he is not in a position to produce a fact that accurately describes reality. Tools matter. Actors matter. Networks matter. So, we're one step closer to reality. We have taken one step along the path of our reconstruction of truth, but we still have a little way to go. I want to revisit something that I talked about last week. When I defined science and philosophy, I also talked about empirical claims versus metaphysical claims. Empirical claims are those supported by current theories and research and evidence, whereas metaphysical claims go over and above current science, beyond current evidence. And the topics that we're covering now, truth, existence, reality, these are topics in metaphysics. My view is that metaphysics can one day become empirical. The ancient Greeks conjectured about the composition of matter, you know, whether it was made of four elements, earth, water, fire, and air, or whether one element was more fundamental than the others, maybe fire or water. And Democritus even argued that everything is composed of tiny atomic building blocks, which actually came quite close to modern theories. At the time, this was pure metaphysical conjecture. There was no empirical evidence, since people lacked the empirical tools to conduct the research. But today, this is firmly the realm of empirical science. So that's why I see a link between metaphysical claims and empirical claims. Metaphysics can one day become empirical, once we develop the right methods. But when we're talking about reality, you could really divide the issue into two questions. 1. Do there exist empirical facts? 2. Do there exist metaphysical facts? The first issue of empirical facts is weaker and easier to accept. Empirical facts only require that there are measurable and observable regularities that act as an external point of reference. For example, one measurable and observable regularity is the size of Trump's inauguration crowd. There is a fact of the matter. X number of people were there, period. It is persistent, and it binds us such that it determines whether our statements are true or false. So, if I claimed that a million people were there, this would be false, by reference to the empirically measurable state of affairs. You'll notice that post-truthers like to doubt even empirical facts, which is ridiculous. Whatever you do, whatever you think about metaphysical facts, do not doubt the existence of empirical facts. Denying empirical facts is untenable. You may, of course, contest the content of the claim, or the method, or the statistic, but there is a fact of the matter, and it's more than mere persuasion. That much about reality should be obvious. The second issue of metaphysical facts sets a higher bar. It really asks something about unobservable reality, that is, as of yet unobservable reality. Do there exist persistent, mind-independent regularities, which are not yet measurable and observable, but which do still determine whether our statements are true or false. 
The claim for metaphysical facts is the stronger of the two, and it's the one that I want to argue for. Crucially, it conceives of reality as something that exists independently of, and indifferent to, human beings. So when we make some claim, whether or not it is measurably true or false, it nonetheless is true or false by virtue of these metaphysical facts. This is the view that there is a reality outside of human beings, outside of everything currently observable and measurable, and it is somewhere to hang your hat. It is an external reference point that determines whether any claim is true or false. Let's take an example. And before you get too excited, this is metaphysics we're talking about, so it's going to be a metaphysical example. Let's consider the structure of space-time. Do you ever lie awake at night, wondering, is space-time flat? Is space-time curved? Is it an n-dimensional hypersurface? More relevant questions may be, are motions independent of masses? Or are trajectories independent of masses? Or is there a natural state of rest in the universe? There are many theories about the structure of space-time, that is, the shape or the kinematics that determines how bodies move, as in the dynamics. This relationship between kinematics and dynamics is between the structure of space and the motion of bodies in space. Do pay close attention to the method here. In order to make a claim about the structure of space-time, we are going to extrapolate from current empirical physics. So, let's consider three options. These are three different dynamics, three theories about the motions of bodies in space, and each singles out a different structure for space. That is, each points to, or each implies or entails, a different structure when we extrapolate. I took these examples from a paper by Anthony Valentini, titled On Galilean and Lorentz Invariance in Pilot Wave Dynamics. The proofs are rather complex, but I'll just briefly mention the three options he talks about. The first theory of motion is Newtonian mechanics, which says that the motions of bodies are independent of masses. So, this implies that motions belong to the structure of space, not to the bodies themselves. And this singles out a structure known as Galilean spacetime, which is a flat spacetime. The second theory is general relativity, which says that the trajectories are what is independent of mass. So trajectories belong to the structure of spacetime, and this points to a curved spacetime. And the third possibility is field theory. This singles out Aristotelian kinematics, a structure that Valentini calls a static field configuration. Okay, enough details. The point is that current science involves competing theories of motion. Each of these theories says that space-time itself has a different structure. And the question is, is there a metaphysical fact of the matter as to that structure? Are some theories true and some theories false by reference to this metaphysical fact, even though we don't know it? The complicating factor is that each theory seems in some way correct or applicable in different contexts. And Valentini says that we can construct the theories in even more ways, 
describing motions differently and describing space-time differently. However, I think that it's untenable to reject metaphysical facts. This would amount to saying that the physics of the universe is the way it is because of human construction. And I'm sure that hardcore constructivists would be okay with this statement. But the opposing stance, my stance, is that the structure of space-time already is a certain way. There is already a metaphysical fact of the matter, and we can be ignorant or mistaken or misled, but reality persists nonetheless. The fact of the matter is something we can latch onto, and it determines whether our current theories are true or false. And they may all be false, and we may never have the tools to arrive at the truth, but it persists nonetheless. Truth is mind-independent. Reality is mind-independent. That is my position. Both in relation to empirical reality and metaphysical reality. By the way, this is kind of central to why I think philosophy is a valuable activity. You might see philosophy as just people arguing with people, or, more precisely, dead white men arguing with dead white men. What's the point if it's all just arbitrary human expressions all the way down? If it's just two guys with two tinfoil hats in two different basements having a shouting match? Surely, you have to believe that what they are doing involves them succeeding or failing to latch onto mind-independent truths. Philosophers do not really make empirical claims. That is the realm of science. So, when they make metaphysical claims, they must be attempting to latch onto some external reality. It's not just human expressions and human whims and human constructions all the way down. Rather, there are mind-independent regularities which map onto claims more closely or more distantly in a way that makes those claims more or less accurate, more true or less true. And empirical methods may come closer to reaching those regularities in the future. So let's return to the two-part question about reality. 1. Do there exist empirical facts? 2. Do there exist metaphysical facts? If you deny the existence of metaphysical facts, then you call into question the whole business of philosophy. If there is no scoreboard or marking scheme for the shouting match between the two guys and the two basements, then we are all surely pissing into the wind. It is, in fact, more reasonable to accept the existence of mind-independent regularities, even at the metaphysical level. This affirms reality as something over and above the human mind, and it aligns with the historical development of the empirical sciences. If you doubt not only metaphysical facts, but also empirical facts, then you've got a pretty skewed and Trumpian view of reality. If this is the case, then surely all of human knowledge-making is doomed. If there is nothing outside of the stories and narratives that we invent about the world, then there is nothing to discover and nothing to latch onto. And nothing is true, or even anything. Everything's a construct, man. Great, then I'm sure you can construct your own penicillin from the comfort of your basement.
The last piece of our reconstruction must refer to brains and bodies and knowledge. You might have noticed that this whole discussion of truth and reality is very closely linked to human knowledge. When we say that something exists, we are really saying that we can know it exists and that we have some access to information about regularities outside of human minds. But everything we know and everything we think and everything we do is done by human bodies and human minds. So the question of reality must boil down to a question of biology. Can we trust our bodies and our brains? Do they give us an accurate representation of reality? I should note that these questions are more relevant for social constructivism as opposed to social constructionism, but we have already decided not to be overly troubled by this distinction. Such questions about biology and reality, how our fleshy brains construct the world, are crucial for any defence of realism. We perceive the world through our sensory motor systems, so it's essential to ask, are our sensory motor systems capable of perceiving reality? From an evolutionary perspective, each organism has evolved to see the world in a very different way. Each organism sees only what it needs to see, for survival or success, or however you frame that evolutionary incentive. An organism's sphere of experience is determined by its biological faculties. For instance, bees can detect ultraviolet light, which helps them to find nectar. But humans cannot see ultraviolet light. In fact, what we call visible light for humans, the rainbow from red to violet, is a small sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum. And the sliver that can be detected by bees includes ultraviolet, but excludes orange and red. So what we see when we look at the world is not what bees see. These differences in biology suggest that there are many ways to experience and construct reality. The term Umwelt is a useful way to think about differences between organisms. Umwelt is a term introduced by Jakob von Uxkel. It comes from the German word for environment, but it's used to mean something more like effective environment or surrounding world. The sensory motor system of each species is different. Therefore, each species experiences the world in a different way. Each species has its own unique Umwelt. Von Uxkel talks about the Umwelt of the tick. The world of the tick is quite simple. It seems like a mean and narrow existence in contrast to our own sensory motor world. The tick lives in a world dominated by three stimuli. Butyric acid, skin and heat. When a tick senses butyric acid, it knows that a mammal is near, so it then drops from its tree and hopes to fall on the mammal's skin. And once on the skin, it runs around to detect heat and then burrows. The life world of the tick, its Umwelt, is vastly different to the Umwelt of a human. In fact, the Umwelt of every species is different. Each has specific needs and specific sensory motor faculties. Each organism has evolved to perceive the world only in the way that it needs to. So, how do we know where biology ends and reality begins? There is an excellent paper which deals with this link between biology and reality, written by Pete Mandick and Andy Clark, titled 
selective representing, and world-making. They introduce von Uxkel and the umwelt of the tick, and they ask, could it be umwelts all the way down? Each organism constructs its own life world, as described in their title, selective representing and world-making. Each organism selectively represents those stimuli and phenomena which are relevant for its survival, and it constructs its own life world, its umwelt, on the basis of evolutionary incentives. There is a gerrymandering of the line between organism and environment, since the animal represents its own world of possibilities based on its own motor profiles. There is an active give and take, a dynamical coupling between the organism and environment. The environment is not some passive reality, it means different things to different organisms, and it is constructed differently by different organisms. This is a dominant idea in AI and robotics at the moment. We are slowly giving up on the idea of a super smart piece of software. Rather, intelligence as we know it requires embodiment. An intelligent AI will have to have a body which can interact with the environment, since human intelligence has evolved to navigate a sensory motor world. Human intelligence is not just located in the brain. Rather, it's found in a dynamical coupling of brain and body and environment. But more on that in episode 4. So it comes down to an issue of privilege. Mandic and Clark tell us that human ways of representing are different from Gibbon's ways and Goldfish's ways. So why privilege our own ways of representing as the true ways or the accurate ways? If we trust our human knowledge about reality, is this just arrogance about our representational scheme? Well, no. Thankfully, Mandic and Clark remind us that there are several reasons why human, scientific knowledge is reliable and is not a mere sensory motor profile like any other. For this last reconstruction of human science and mind-independent reality, I want to introduce the concepts of subjective, objective, and intersubjective. I'll start with objective. The word objective is thrown around a lot and means different things, especially in legal definitions. But in this context, in philosophy, objective means mind-independent. I've talked throughout this whole episode about mind-independent reality, and this is the same as objective reality. Those things which exist outside of human minds, indifferent to human belief or imagination. We can be ignorant or mistaken or misled about features of objective reality, and those features do not care. They do not change. And this is directly opposed to the concept of subjective. Features that are subjective are dependent on minds. Subjective elements include belief, imagination, knowledge, ignorance, hopes, fears, dreams, and so on. For example, John believes that Nicolas Cage is the best actor ever. This is not a statement about reality outside of minds. It does not refer to anything objective. Rather, it refers to John's state of mind, and the statement is true or false by reference to John's subjective beliefs. So, objective means mind-independent. Subjective means mind-dependent. 
intersubjective can be slightly tricky. These are entities or features or states of affairs which are not independent of minds, so they are not objective. They are dependent on minds, but they're dependent on many minds. Subjective entities, like John's belief about Nicolas Cage's acting abilities, depend only on one mind. Intersubjective entities, like belief in the euro or the Dutch economy, depend on many minds. Things that exist intersubjectively are commonly held beliefs, often by large populations. For instance, the value of the euro. This is not a matter of reality outside of human minds. There is nothing in the stars or the dirt or the weight of an atom that says how one euro should be priced against the US dollar. But equally, the value of a euro is more than what John believes. It's about what billions of people collectively believe. So, subjective means dependent on one mind. Intersubjective means dependent on many minds. And when it comes to subjective, I take this to mean one human mind, or one AI system, or one organism. For me, subjective means the internal frame of a mind, or an organism, or a system. Those elements which are internal to a system, relating to the inner life, as opposed to the outer world. These notions of objective, subjective, and intersubjective are quite important when it comes to the question of what is real or what exists, and I'll be using them in later episodes. For now, let's go back and polish off our reconstruction of reality. As Mandic and Clark tell us, human science is a reliable measure of reality because the classifications of science are not bound by the classifications of our senses. Chemistry tells us that glass and water are both liquids. If we were straitjacketed by our naive sensory impressions, then we would not be able to latch onto these truths about objective reality. But we can step outside of our sensory motor world. And also, we enjoy an open-ended use of technology. We investigate reality using far more than our original biological tools. Mandek and Clark call this an apparently endless array of props and cognitive scaffolding. Pens, paper, sextants, software agents. And the fact of gerrymandering empowers us. The fact that different tools construct the same environment in different ways means that we can continue reconstructing our life world using new technology in a way that is increasingly accurate by reference to objective reality. And lastly, my favourite reason, subjectivity entails objectivity. All of this talk of umwelts and ticks and gibbons and goldfish points to the inherent subjectivity of world-making. Each organism's view of reality is subjective because it is constructed differently and selectively for different purposes. But we should not forget that it is objective constraints which give rise to this subjectivity. It is objective differences between the sensory motor systems of organisms that create the conditions for different subjective experiences. The tick's umwelt is defined by butyric acid and heat and animal skin, but these are objective constraints. 
the subjective differences in the ways that different animals perceive the world would not be possible without a shared objective reality. Subjectivity entails objectivity. As Mandic and Clark put it, some features may be subjective, but whether they are subjective is itself an objective matter. The differences between the constructed life world of organisms does not undermine the existence of a shared reality. Rather, it requires a shared reality. Subjective differences are only possible because of objective differences between sensory motor systems. There is a necessary link between subjective construction and objective reality. At the start of this episode, I juxtaposed two philosophical positions, realism versus social constructivism, and I then went on to show that they are not incompatible. And moreover, I argued that constructivism requires and entails realism. So is it an artificial juxtaposition? Was I attacking a straw man? Well, I don't see it that way. At their cores, in their most pure forms, they are juxtaposed. Realism says that reality is just there. It's bare, in front of us. We can access it and we can know about it. Constructivism says, no, reality isn't just there. Or if it is, we can't know, because we can't ever get beyond our own knowledge. We're so trapped within our own knowledge that we can't access reality. Constructivists don't categorically deny the existence of reality, they simply say that reality is inaccessible because of the constraints on our knowledge. My position falls more towards the centre. I recognise that brains construct the world, but I still argue that we can get beyond mere construction. We can get beyond the constraints of our biology and we can actually grasp reality. And biology becomes highly relevant. How we perceive the world is through our sensory motor systems. So we have to tackle the question of whether our eyeballs can perceive the world and whether our fleshy brains and, more importantly, our desktop computers can access reality. I believe that the answer to this question is yes, but it's a question of stepping outside of our knowledge. Stepping outside of our knowledge. This is where constructivists and realists part ways. Realists would say that we can step outside of our knowledge and get at reality itself, whereas constructivists would say that we can't. So that is the slightly complex relation between minds and reality. In the next two episodes, I'll be speaking much more about humans and animals and AI, what defines the differences between organisms or systems, and the prospects for building artificial minds. For now, I think we can wrap up our reconstruction of truth. Maybe you've never spent much time thinking about reality or what exists, so I hope this has given you a clearer picture. The question of reality is a question of what exists objectively, outside of the subjective life world of one particular human or animal or computer system. All animals do experience the world differently, but there is a shared reality which underpins those differences. And human science has a privileged access to what reality is really like. This is my response to the postmodernist. Everything is a construct, man. Well, no, it's not.
there is a persistent, mind, independent reality outside of human and animal constructions. Technology and the method of science gives us special access to that reality. Making accurate claims about what is true requires special tools, tools not possessed by men in basements with tinfoil hats. When it comes to the two levels of reality claims, empirical claims and metaphysical claims, we should undoubtedly affirm the truth of empirical claims. This says that there are external standards for truth which hold us accountable, and this takes the power away from Trump and postmodernists and post-truthers who think that any construction of reality is up for grabs. Instead, we affirm the shared reality that binds us to external standards of truth and falsity. I would even encourage you to take metaphysical claims seriously. The history of natural philosophy has shown that our most far-reaching claims can one day become empirical science. Aristotle's physics is now subject to empirical testing. Philosophy can do valuable work now, extrapolating from current research and paving the way for future science. If philosophy is careful in the way that it extrapolates and reaches out, then it can come quite close to the mark. So that's all for today. I hope you'll join me next time for a discussion about human minds and animal minds. Look out for episode three of Extrapolator, wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks again to Chiara Lacroix. Her pessimism about human science and its ability to latch onto reality was an indispensable springboard for my own arguments. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by graphic designer and co-twin Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it will be released very shortly on Spotify and other streaming platforms. The main theme is called Entry Music for a Podcast, and there are four tracks in the whole album, titled Extrapolator, Original Podcast Soundtrack. If you were intrigued by any of the books and papers I mentioned, you can find a bibliography for this episode on my blog at jeffallanwriting.wordpress.com. You can also follow the Extrapolator podcast on Instagram at extrapolatorpod. Until next time.